All right, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for this class. I pray you'd help us to have a great time today as we talk about these things. May we have clarity and may there be uh, wisdom, Lord. And, and, and thank you for your word that uh, we can learn from that teaches us truth and how to live out what you desire of us. I pray you give everyone here wisdom as they think about their own passages. And Lord, I pray, just thank you so much for this opportunity to sit around and to talk about these things and to, and to just have this time uh, from you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, the, the other sheet is going to go towards the back of your book. And what you're looking for is you're going to look for a, a, uh, a little swoopy image, like, a, like an upside-down, uh, I don't know how else to say it, but it's, I'll show you in this. Um, I think I called it like the shape of the argument or something like that. The shape of the argument, shape of the sermon. And then right after that is page. So really we're getting into, we're getting into the whole preaching, what preaching is and how that's different from study. Because so far what we've been doing, has everybody got their, their pages where they're supposed to go? Has everybody got their pages? Did you say put this behind this? Yeah, so you're going to look for the, the swoopy thing that looks like this. Page 45. Yeah, and you're, gonna, you're going to put it in right after that. So if you look on the screen here, so preaching the passage, the shape of the argument, the very next page should be the propositional statement handout. You got that? Okay. I think this is a student handbook, yeah. Page 51 is in mine, but whatever. It's, it's an odd page. It'll be... It'll be a full page. Okay. So um, now go back to your worksheets. You're going to go back to your worksheets. And I want to show you kind of where we are in the process of developing your message. If you go and look at your worksheets, um, really at the very beginning, there's like a little explanation, a little list. It looks like this, the order of preparation. And what you'll find is that Really, we're still kind of, we just finished up exegesis, which is the drawing out of a text. You're trying to figure out what the text is saying. We spent almost half the semester on just trying to understand what your passage is saying. Okay, and that is, that is essential. Um, I'm going to give you back your, your exegetical outlines at the end of class today. I thought you did a great job on, on outlining, on, on figuring out what the passage is saying. Um, then we move to the following condition focus and proposition. Hopefully today you're able to get a following condition focus written. Um, if you'll notice, the exegesis steps here, you'll, I had on this next page, choose your text, identify transitions, etc., do all these things, prepare an exegetical outline, an exegetical thesis. That's what you did last time when you brought, got me your exegetical outline, exegetical thesis, Okay. Your exegetical outline, exegetical thesis, focus on what is in the text, what the text is saying. So now we're moving on from there to the real part of how to write a sermon. So let's just now we assume that what you have developed is, or I'm sorry, what you have what you have studied is what the passage is saying. I'm not going to really argue with you much unless you're way off in left field. As far as like, I'm going to assume that you've done the work, you've done the spade work, the digging in the soil, and now you're ready to kind of do your FCF and then propositions. So what is an FCF? It's on the screen. Fallen uh, fall, thank you. Fallen condition focus. Please, everyone, don't be. You've got, you've got to be on with me today, all right? We're going to cover a lot of ground. Fallen condition. Yeah, that's a slightly different thing, <laughs> I would say. Slightly different. Fallen condition focus of a text. Sorry, I got these little paragraph markers on there. It's going to drive somebody all crazy. The fallen condition focus is the mutually shared condition. I have the, the definition here from the book. The fallen condition focus is the mutual human condition that contemporary believers share with those to or about whom the text was written that requires the grace of the passage for God's people to glorify and enjoy him. That's a fancy way of saying, as we have drawn this diagram so many times, there is the, the then, um, the always, 
and the now. Or what it said, what it means, what it means to me. Your message is going to be in this realm. Bible study is in this realm. How do you get from Bible study to message? This is what we're going to be talking about. And you're finding the mutual, the shared human fallenness characteristic that we have with the people about whom the text was written or to whom the text was written. So there's a huge difference between the text of the, uh, the people who heard the text originally, who heard your passage. I mean, you're talking about, we've got Genesis 22 over here, written a long time ago. You know, we're talking 1,500 years before Christ was even born. And we have Daniel written sometime, you know, during the exile period. And then we have uh, passages in the New Testament, Ephesians over here, which was written by Paul in the first century. So different people, different audiences, different cares, different problems, yet they share conditions with us. So we try to find what is that shared connection? What is the mutualness? The, you know what I mean by that? Like, what do they have that we have? There is this, this is a very important concept because actually today in our culture today, this is being ripped apart. There is this idea today that basically uh, that, that, that we in the modern world are better than people in the past. It's called chronological snobbery. <laughs> you ever heard of this? Yep. C.S. Lewis talks about this chronological snobbery. It's just because it's new, it's better. Okay. All you have to do is read great thinkers of the past. And you realize very quickly that people today are not as smart as they think they are. Just because you have all the information in the world in your pocket does not mean, number one, that information is correct, or number two, that you can do anything, I, I, that, you, that you actually know how to process and think through that information. Information is not wisdom. And so people are people are people. And the people who existed in the first century in Rome, people existed in Jerusalem or in, uh, let's say, Jerusalem in the, in the thousand BC, or people who existed in Babylonia, you know, or in Egypt in 1444 are the same kinds of people who exist today. Same fallen condition. Okay. Sin nature. So what are some of your FCFs? I asked you to come up with an FCF for your passage. Did you do that? Yes. Okay. Let's go around and let's talk about your FCFs and let's see how you did. Um, everyone's going to say your FCF. We're going to discuss it briefly. We're not going to spend too much time on each person's FCF, but I just want you to be able to articulate it and we can give you some pointers on how you're doing. So start here. You ready? Yeah. Passage first. Um, 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. So what's the FCF for 1 Corinthians 13? I actually came up with two different ones, like two different directions that you go. So okay. I'm not sure which one to use. Okay. Um, the first one is people are naturally selfish and prioritize their own needs and desires before the needs and desires of others. Okay, hold on. Let's say that slowly. People are naturally selfish and prioritize the needs and desires of them, themselves over the needs and desires of others, right? Okay, and what's your second one? Um, people take the value of love for granted. People take the value of love for granted. Okay, um, I'll give you two, two. The first one is closer to the one I'm looking for than the second one. Uh, because the value of love is just really the first part of your, of your passage, right? I mean, you, you get into the value of love, and then I'm look, I was looking at your outline this, this morning. Um, that doesn't cover the whole passage because you talk about then what love is in examples of temporary things and then three things that end. like so i think that's too limiting what do, uh what how you said people say it again people are naturally selfish and prioritize their own needs and desires before the needs and desires of others okay give her uh, uh some feedback what do you guys think about that do you, do you identify with that people are naturally selfish and prioritize their own needs over the needs of others that's a pretty, that's a pretty good. That's accurate. Yeah. I, I, only thing I'd say is it's a little bit long. And so is, is there a way you can say that with fewer words, maybe be a little more pointed? Like, um, most people look out for number one, you know, most people look out for themselves. Most people are self-centered is a good way of saying it. People are selfish. People are self-centered people. You know, we are even Christians tend to be self-centered, tend to be Selfish. It's not apparent what the answer to that problem is. That love is the answer to that problem. And that's good because you want people to be like, you know, so how do I solve this problem? I'm constantly looking out for myself. Does that make sense? 
Any other thoughts or comments? That's really good. Good job. Start on a high note. Way to go. Let's see if we can follow that up. Cadence. Um, okay, so... <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. I weren't laughing at you. Charles said, here's his low note. So go ahead. Go ahead, Cadence. I have Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, um, and my passage primarily talks about, um, in verses 1 through 3, who we are without Christ, um, dead in trespasses and sins, then what God makes um, us, and then his gift of salvation. So I could go with an FCF of um, we are sinners without God or beyond hope without God. Um, okay. I also really like that people are nothing without God, but I don't know. It doesn't. People are nothing without God. Okay, so, so th- you are identifying a fault that people have, that they are nothing without God. But you're also giving them the solution, which is God. So what you want to do is you want to try to communicate to people um, what their need is without telling them the answer to that because your answer is going to come in your proposition. So somebody, somebody see if you can help out Cadence here. She says, people are nothing without God. What's the other thing you said there? Um, people are worldly sinners without God. People are worldly sinners without God. Okay, a passage says, um, you were dead in trespasses and sins. You once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Okay, yeah, there. that's what you were talking about there. Among you once conducted yourself whilst of the flesh, fulfilling desires. Okay, but God was rich in mercy because of his great love which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ, and raised us up together. Then the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For my grace you have been saved through faith. Okay? Anybody have any thoughts? I mean, this is a tricky, this is a tough passage because we're going to talk about this in a minute, but this passage is, uh, let me stop for a moment. And kind of address this issue. We'll come back to it when we talk about propositions. But we've talked a lot about truth and exhortation. Right? So a truth and an exhortation. A truth is like because God is great. Or because uh, here you were lost. You know, you were, and it describes us in our past. um, Following Satan, according to the prince of the power of the air. All these things are true. Okay? What exhortations are in this passage? Um, to walk according to the ways God has prepared for us. It, it's not okay, exactly an exhortation, but in 10, okay. I think it lends itself to that. Um, yeah, you find, you, it, doesn't really it doesn't have any, right? It doesn't have any. So you have to decide um, what is the exhortation here. Like this is a truth-heavy passage. There are a bunch of truths, and they're all doom, boom, 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 boom. They're lined up here. And so you have to just, like, our depravity, God's graciousness. God's, our depravity could be the first part. Our, God's greatness and graciousness towards us is that second part. So what's the, what's the exhortation? What's the truth? What do you, what do you, so here, here's the trick. Here's kind of the trick. When a passage is, is exhortation heavy, so some of you have exhortation heavy. I think Pat's is pretty exhortation. Put on the armor of God. Uh, do that, you know, put on the shield of faith. Da, da, da. It's always like telling him what to do over and over again. It, 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 that is, um, then you're going to focus on exhortation. But if it's truth heavy, very often what you're focusing on is a change of mind. Okay? You're trying to get people to change the way they think about something, not necessarily how they act. Now, how they act comes from how they think. But you're going to really focus on looking at your passage and saying, okay, what about the way we think is God addressing here? So how, now that I've said that, can you guys, this is the passage. Can you guys get, yeah. Well, could you do something like, um, I just lost the beginning of this. Um, people are really sinners without God. Or so, like people are nothing with God, with, or people are nothing um, in search for something to fulfill them. People are looking for something to fulfill them. Yeah. But people have nothing but are in search of something to fulfill them. Like, I don't know her passages. Yeah. Super well. I don't know about fulfilling. I think that that's... This is really talking about salvation. I mean, I, this is a tough passage to really get it, to really drill down for an FCF. Like, what is the condition? It has. I think it has to be something about self, um, 
Okay, so that's an interesting idea. So you could take something like, um, we like to pretend like we've always uh, been. Okay, this is that's a really good. Okay, so here's an idea, and this is where your sermon begins to take shape. All right, you say so, that's a really interesting thought. We tend, we can tend to think that we've always been this, been where we are. We forget where we've come from as kind of a kind of a thing. And so here he reminds them where they come from, and he reminds them where they're going. You see what I'm saying? That that is much more universal than and much more like we for, everybody can can remember that. Like you you walk is okay. Classic illustration. You open your message with <clears throat> kids in the senior class walk into high school. You guys are homeschool. You don't know what that's like. You walk into high, you walk into high school and you're like looking at these stupid freshmen. And you like slam them up against the and you forget that you were the freshman. You know you were there. But you think that, you know, you walk in, you think you've always been this cool. No, you weren't always this cool. You used to wear your pants like that, too, just like they did. Okay, you, yeah, but that's a silly example. But the idea here is that that's a great, that I, like, I like what Wendy said. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah, so could my FCF be, we often forget what God has saved us from? We often forget what God has saved us from. Yeah, forget where we've been. Oh, yeah, what he saved us from. But see, you don't want to just make the answer obvious. This is where it gets really tricky. And I want to keep moving because I don't want to get too tight. But the idea is something like we forget where we came from is a little more vague. If you say we forget, how did you say it? That what God has saved us from? Well, then remember what God has saved us from. You know, you don't want to just automatically make the answer super apparent. You want to, you want to, make it so that people are like, huh, that's true. I can see that's a problem. And how does this passage tell me how to deal with that? What you're focusing here on then is remember what God has done. Remember where you were. Remember what God has done. And your, 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 your exhortations, your exhortation really, your, your exhortation is remember, right? Or something like that. So we often forget who we once were. Yeah, sure, that's a great idea. Who we once were. Yeah, something like that. It's totally fine. Yes, ma'am. You're next. You got one? Yeah. What you got? My passage is Ephesians 5. Right. And my RCF is how do Christians um, keep from surrounding to the pull of darkness instead of their lives in Christ? Okay. How do they? How do Christians what? Keep from surrendering, surrendering to the pull of darkness. Okay. That that's not okay. That's that, I get what you're saying. How do they? How do Christians keep from surrendering to the pull of darkness in their Christian life? Okay. So so what? Um, what an FCF? You're very close. An FCF would probably be something more like, um, even. Even Christians feel the attraction of darkness or something like that. Even Christians feel the attraction of sin, the temptation to sin, right? We feel that. So how, and then the, the obvious question is, how do you get out of that? How do you avoid that? And um, it's kind of similar to what, what Cadence is saying here. It's like that you were once darkness, now light. Walk as light, yeah. So does that make sense? Okay, very good. Pat, what you got? Ephesians 6, um, 10 through 20, the armor of God. Right. Um, we do not fight against flesh and blood. We fight against um, invisible spiritual wickedness. So um, I'm going with we cannot see our biggest enemy. Ooh. Ooh, that's good. We can't see our biggest enemy. Um, yeah, I like it. I like it. And then you, you, yeah, absolutely. That creates a definite curiosity in the, in who the, enemy? yeah, who is our biggest enemy? What are you talking about? Like, um, especially for a non-believer sitting there that's never heard this. Who is our biggest enemy if we can't see him? Excellent. Unless someone's got a better idea for me. No, anybody have any feedback for that? I, I think that's good. <laughs> what you got, Charles? First John, one. Yeah, first John, one, four, three, two, six. Oops. And uh, I'm thinking a, a whole different one here. Well, well, give me what you got, and then we can Okay. We can always adjust. I, I had the total wrong idea, as usual. No, it's okay. Though Christians will enjoy eternal life and glory with Christ, the enjoyment of fellowship with Christ in this life requires continual cleansing of sin through confession and walking in the light. Yeah, that's more of a propositional statement than an FCF. Yeah, so what do you have for FCF if you were to change that, like you were just working on? Uh, the pervasiveness of sin in a Christian's life is a continual hindrance to fellowship with Christ. Okay, so we're talking about that. That's a fact. 
that the pervasiveness of sin in a Christian's life prevents fellowship with God. But let's, let's turn it a little bit towards people sitting in the pew say, have you ever wondered why Christians can't stop sinning? So this is more like it's supposed to be an introductory statement? Sort of. No, I mean, I just gave it as a question, but maybe um, Christian, even, it's actually, it's not supposed to be a question. But if we made it into a statement, it would be something like, it, it is in the introduction of your message. So in the introduction of your message, you're going to start with some sort of thing leading up to your FCF. That's the first big movement in your message. Wait, so is it kind of like an exordium almost? I don't know what an exordium is. Oh, ex- oh um, it does, no, it's not really a question. Uh, it's supposed to be a statement, but let me, let me rephrase that, Charles. Um, something like, even Christians, even the most spiritual Christian you know, still sins. You know, something like that. E- e- you know, why, why is it that no matter how spiritual we are, or, or even this, have you ever noticed that the closer you draw to God, the God, the more it seems that you sin? Like, that's a, that's a really yeah. curious question. Like the danger of not seeing our sin. Yeah, or, or you can go a different direction, like the danger of not seeing your sin. Or you try to cover your sin, because this talks about that in verses 8 and 10. So something like that. Or you look, wait, am, I, am I confusing you about something? No, I, you know, but somewhere, I, you know, these pages are all numbered. They're numbered incorrectly, yes. Monkey. But I... I looked at the model that was in here. And, okay. And I can't find it. I should get some sticky pads and stick on these things. Was it, um, so I have this one here on the bottom. Uh, like, Christians don't love God enough would would be an obvious negative. Well, so, yeah. I mean, is that what you're thinking of? Yeah, I, I looked at that one. I mean, I looked at those so, things carefully. But... The purpose of the FCF is, like I said, to identify that mutual shared condition between us and the people about whom or to whom the passage was written. So what is the condition that John is addressing? He's addressing their failure to walk with God in the light, right? You think? Yeah, that's, that's, one of the, that's one of the indicators. So what is the core, the core issue? If you could sum it up in one, like one idea. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we are in Him, there has to be a solution for the darkness that's in us. Okay, what? That's great. So, so good job. I mean, it's it's is no. What you just summarized is great. That that what you know here. That what's what's the solution for the darkness within us? I mean, it's kind of that came well, out of an illustration that I'm planning to use. Yeah, well, that's but that's great. I mean, the idea is is what what. Is that solution? That's the whole idea behind FCF. Is you're trying to create a thirst for a solution. Okay. You got it. I think so. Yeah. All right. What did I say? I go some, something like that. You can always. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you got it. You got it. In your, it's in your brain. He can listen to the recording. You can listen to the recording. Yeah. Be one of the tens of subscribers. <laughs> uh, all right, Christy. Um, your passage again is Joseph, right? Joseph's story. Yes. Mm-hmm. Genesis 37, 12 through 37. Okay. And it's sometimes we feel like we're being punished before we know the outcome. Sometimes we feel like we're being punished before we know. Sometimes we feel like we're being punished before we know the outcome. The outcome of what? Like of the whole thing? You mean the bigger picture? Okay. Yeah, sometimes it feels like God is angry at us. Sometimes God, it feels like God is punishing us. Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Before we can see God's full plan for us. But you, yeah, you want to be careful to... We're not there yet. We're not yet giving the solution to the problem. You want to... You mean in my passage? Yeah, in the passage at all. What? Said something before that. <laughs> That's my question, though. Because obviously, like, I do know it doesn't say... It doesn't give... Like his outcome in this. Mm-hmm. So, would I not be? Able so, what you're going to have to do, and I was going to, I was actually going to mention this today, is what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to actually probably do a, a flash forward to, at the end of your ser- sermon, whatever, to when yeah, when to to the end of Genesis to show how this worked out in some way because. Um, I feel like I'm hanging out on cliffhanger. Right, and 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 Joseph's story is a long arc, right? And there's nothing wrong with taking a snapshot and saying, 
you know, here is when he really, he, when, good, what, when, when bad things happen to good people is kind of what you're doing, right? I mean, what, what if, you, are you, when you feel like God is punishing you and you haven't done anything wrong? Yeah, you're, you don't understand. Like, what is God doing? It doesn't make sense. And, and God's mercy, I think, is something you ought to think about in your passage, especially I was looking at that in your, in your outline here, because you see one of the questions I have for you guys in your, in your handout for today is when you're doing a narrative, is you have to ask yourself, what character trait of God is being on display here? And it may not be explicit. It may be kind of under the, under the surface. So with Joseph's story, he comes and his brothers say, hey, let's kill him. Then what happens? Reuben says, don't kill him. Let's put him in this pit. And that's part of God's mercy. And then he's coming by and like, oh, let's sell him. And he's like, and that's part of God's mercy. He ends up at Potiphar's house. Part of God's mercy and protecting. So you see God's protecting hand, even when, or maybe you want to think of it as God's protecting hand or God's mercy or whatever. But however you want to say it, but that's there in the story. It just doesn't say, and God protected him by this. You kind of have to read in between the lines a little bit sometimes. Even with Dan- Daniel, same thing a little bit. I wouldn't put that in with my... Not the FCF. You're good. That's more of a proposition, which so we'll talk about in a minute. The FCF along the same line. Say it again. Keep the FCF along the same line. All right. Say the FCF one more time. I'm sorry. Sometimes we feel like we're being punished before we know the outcome or the bigger picture. Yeah, so cut, off the, cut it off in half. So sometimes we feel like we're being punished for no reason at all. Okay. Or something like that. That's a, great, that's a good FCF. I mean, I, I feel that way sometimes. Right? I'm sure we all felt that way sometimes. Keep going. Um, so obviously I have Daniel chapter 2. Um, so obviously the end of chapter 1 is obviously you have Daniel that purposes his heart not to defile himself. Mm-hmm. All those things end up, ends up being better than all the other astrologers and um, wise men. Comes into chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar has the dream, um, is troubled by the dream, wants someone to interpret it. Um, first of all, tell him what the dream was and then interpret it. Um, so basically what I was kind of put um, in this is sometimes we find ourselves in a place where we feel trapped and wondered if God abandoned us. Ooh, a similar, but different. That's why so I sometimes we feel like God, yeah, I, I, I would simplify it a little bit, yeah. but it's, you got the right idea yeah. because D- Daniel is in a faraway land away from God mm-hmm. and God gives him an opportunity to, um, Demonstrates faithfulness to God. Right. And it's one of those things where it's like, obviously, with chapter, the way that chapter one ends is like, it's almost like a happy ending. Like, yay, like God, like God came through with him, and all of a sudden, boom, he like drops him. Like another thing, it's like, what in the yep. world's going on here? So say it again. Sometimes we find ourselves in a place where we feel trapped and wonder if God abandoned us. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty good. I, I think that's good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you might be able to, like I said, you might be able to simplify it a little bit, but that's, what kind of the idea? that's the idea. Anybody have any thoughts on that? You know, the story where he has to interpret the dream. Okay. Wendy. Um, I'm reading Philippians 2, 1 through 13. And I put, um, we are selfish people looking out for our own interests to get into the division of a church body. Ooh. Yeah. Because that's the broader context really here. I wasn't sure if I should have worked in because there's that exaltation of Christ, but I just yeah. There's out, so. so. What is selfishness pushing for? Exaltation of self. Yeah. So what is the promise here? That if we humble ourselves, God will exalt us. That's that's the parallel. Wherefore, as God hath highly exalted Him, you know, as you have always bade, not in my presence only, work out your own salvation. For as God who works in you to do his, you know, so God will do. Yeah. So God will exalt you in due time. Basically is, the, is, the, is the, is what he's saying there. God, just like God exalted Christ in, after his humiliation. So you humble yourselves. And then, the FCF, right? No, 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 yeah. no, no, no. I'm just kind of drawing out what you're saying. No, you're right. That's a pretty good FCF. Any thoughts to Wendy? Please correct me. <laughs> no, say it one more time so we can hear it. We are selfish people looking out for our own interests, even to the division of the church body. We're selfish people looking out for our own interests. Yeah. Like even to where it would divide the church. Yeah. I'm trying to think about that. So one of the things that you may, like you may, 
You don't. It's 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 just a it's just a slight slight this a tad broad. You could be a little more specific. Like, what is it about their selfishness? If you look at verse two, um, being like-minded, same love, one accord, one mind. It says unity. Like you're talking about the division of the church, but there's obviously this. For some reason, they're thinking that they find exaltation in what makes them unique, you know, instead of what binds them together. Like what makes them special? They're 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 dividing from one another as a way of exalting each themselves, rather than seeing that they ought to be united. If something like that, I don't know. I don't know how that plays into your. I don't either. I, I don't either. I, and I, I'm just. I mean, what you have is pretty good. I mean, it's very good. I just. I'm. I'm trying to think. Uh, maybe something like that. I mean, I mean, these are all. I'm very impressed, by the way. All of you are doing excellent, excellent job. I'm only being picky because I can be. You, really, it's good. Now let's see if we can keep it up. Ryan. <laughs> Genesis 22. One through 18. Okay. Have, um, sometimes we don't obey God because we don't understand what He's doing. I know. I, I know. I use "don't," but I don't know how else to phrase that. Sometimes we don't obey God because we don't understand what He's doing. Um, did did Abraham understood what he was doing? No. Huh. Well, kind of Could you almost like almost summarize it as in like you may not understand the sovereignty of God or like um, may not understand the, the big picture or something along those lines? Is that well, kind of what you're trying to get well, God's to? Testing us or yeah, um, I had trouble because there's Abraham and Isaac don't do anything wrong. Right, it's they're the example of how we are to act. Right. So, what they did versus what is exemplary, yeah. right? And what God does is He tests them. They're not aware of the testing, and they come through. They're an exemplary. They're a good example of what to follow. Yeah. Say it again. What's the SCA? Sometimes we don't obey God because we don't know what he, we don't understand what He's doing. Yeah. I think the only thing I would do differently is I might say something like, um, "Sometimes we wonder whether we should obey God because we don't understand what He's doing." Because there's no, like you said, there's no disobedience here. But Abraham might have wondered. We don't know that for certain. Um, but the, he definitely had to warn. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, any dad who any dad who's given that command is like, he, he's going to be the you know, um, Lord. He's going to be the heir of the world. But um, you want me to kill yeah. him? But in Hebrews, we're told he knew he would raise him from the dead. Right, right. He believed, and we see that in the text even where he says, "Lelat and I will come back." We right, will come right. Back. Yeah. So the faith there is is key. But wondering, see, I guess here's the point I'm trying to say is that you can wonder, you can have doubt, and still have faith. This is something that a lot of people don't understand, that, that you can be not like, like, that's why the disciples are like, Lord, we, we increase our faith. They're like, we believe you, but it's like hard to believe you. And Spurgeon says it this way. He says, a little, a little faith, like that's why Jesus says faith as big as a mustard seed can move mountains. It's not the, the size of your faith that matters. It's the object of your faith. It's like, what is your faith in? If you have a little faith in the right thing, that's all it takes. As long as you have faith in the right thing. If you have a lot of faith in the wrong thing, that's bad. Yeah, and you can obey and be riddled with doubts. Right, right, exactly. And I think, I think even Abraham here, I, I love this passage so much because as, as he's preparing, and notice here it says, um, he, it, all the and, they're called vav consecutives in Hebrew. So, and Abraham, it's the word and. And Abraham rose early in the morning, and he saddled his donkey, and he took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose, and he went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day. I mean, it's like this, it's this constant like, and then this happened. And then this happened. We're like, tell me what happens. Like, you know, you're just waiting. And so the, I think every step along the way, you have these moments where Abraham is like doing the next thing and like waiting for God to stop him. But he keeps doing it. So I would say something like wonder instead of disobey. Because Abraham does not disobey. Does that? I don't know. It, it's a really picky thing. But I, I, think, I think you're on the right track there. Yes, sir. Well, Abraham had grown through many trials of his faith over decades up to this point in time. You think about where he started. In fact, I would say this is probably Abraham's first success. 
to this point, Abraham's been a big failure. He's lied about his wife, yeah. right? He's done nothing right. He takes a lot with him. Everything he does is like fail, fail, fail. And you get to this point, you're like, okay, is he even going to, like, whoa. Yeah, he's done all the wrong things. He had the son by the... He stayed for 10 years after Hagar God told him to move. Yeah. yeah. He still stayed. So there's a lot of rich ground here, obviously. So I think you're in good hands. I think you're in the right direction, absolutely. But you, might, you could tweak it still a little bit. As, as you develop your message, you might tweak it a little bit, but you're in the right place. Kevin. I'm uh, doing Philippians 1, 19 through 30. Okay. Um, and um, my SDF isn't very good, but... Um, That's okay. Let's hear it. I, I had um, people find it easier to uh, live how they want to, not how they should. Okay. So what would people find it easier to live how they want to, not how they should? I don't think that's so bad. People live how they want to live. I just would cut that last part. I don't know how they should. People live how they people like to live how they want to live. People like to make choices about what they want to do. There, this is really your key, right? For to me to live is Christ. You know, dethroning self and putting Christ on the on the throne. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's good. Any, any what? What do you guys think? How would you tweak that? Simplicity is good. Like being simple and direct. Okay. All of you, well done. I'm very, I'm very impressed. That's, that's excellent. Excellent work. Um, I think you all are in the right direction. So now let's talk about propositions. So I gave you that handout today because, uh, again, I'm sorry about the page numbers. I really am. Uh, if you really want, I'll send you, I'll print out a whole brand new work, you know, thing for you if you really want it. I should have done it page by page, but I really thought I was helping you guys out. So I... Um, if you go to, um, there are two things, if you could actually help me out. Grab your worksheet for propositions, worksheet three, and then also that handout I just gave you. Um, the title of the handout was the propositional statement. It's right after a little swoopty thing like that, the propositional statement. So you're going to look for this thing, this little... Worksheet three is on page nine. On mine. Yeah, it's gonna be. Oh, that's gonna probably be right. Um, so I'm gonna walk through. Let's go back a page. Let's talk about preaching the passage, the shape of the argument, and then we will get into the. Um, I this is this is on the back table right there. I'm sorry, I just gave it out today. Three pages. That should be in your notes already. Yeah. Okay, so... Yeah, I'm sorry. So you're going to need both of these things out. Let's talk about this first, and then we'll get into the proposition. Okay, the, the sermon event itself, as in what you, what you preach, should take the basic form as a story. That is, it should have an introduction, crisis, resolution, and denouement. Another way of thinking about this shape or form in, in, of, this, of, of the lesson or of the sermon is as follows. Okay, I'm going to give you several things to write on, on that little swoop-de-doo, okay? You ready? Everybody got your swoop-de-doo up? This thing here? Oh, I, I guess I can. Well, I can't write on it here. Uh, the first movement is going to be, as you introduce here, we're going to call this the huh. H-U-H. The huh. All right, these are a bunch of really funny words, all right? Um, then as it goes down, I'm going to do, I'll go ahead and draw this out. No, it's kind of just setting the stage. Okay. Then we're going to have the whoops. Okay, the whoops. And at the very bottom, I'm going to put, I call it uh-oh. I know I told you these are silly words, all right, but I think you'll get the idea. Now, this is deep theological. This is super deep. Right? This is super deep. <laughs> the huh, whoops, uh oh, and then ah, uh, 
A-H exclamation point. Ah. Okay. And then the very last one I'm going to call the hurrah. So, huh, whoops, uh-oh, ah, hurrah. All right, this was taken, I adapted this uh, actually from a book, uh, it's at the bottom there, the homiletical plot. He gives them as oops, ugh, aha, we, and yeah, which I don't like nearly as much as mine. Um, technically, these terms are upsetting the equilibrium, analyzing the discrepancy, disclosing the clue to resolution, experiencing the gospel, anticipating the consequences. So, fancy way of saying this is as you preach, so this is thinking not about your text, but about your sermon. You, and this is really kind of good for almost any speech you give, to be quite honest, is that you're going to present, them with a, present people with an issue, set the stage, and then there's a problem that's introduced. This is your FCF idea. Okay, there's a problem we have. You've got to introduce people, and you've got to show them how bad the problem gets. And then the solution to that problem, which is found in God, in Christ, in the grace that is given in the Scripture instruction of how to overcome that problem and hope that once you overcome that problem, you'll walk with Christ in a better way. Does that make sense? So every sermon you have should have a momentum to it that you are going to show people a problem and you spend a lot of your time addressing this issue here. How do you turn that corner? Okay. That's why your FCF is so crucial because it kind of sets the stage for your text and how it applies into your passage. So there's two kinds of preaching. And uh, I have that next, deductive and inductive preaching. Deductive preaching states the big idea or the proposition. So I'm just going to draw this up here. Deductive means you state your, your proposition and then your main points. Follow your proposition. Proposition, because God loves us, we must love him. Because God loves us, we must serve him. Because God loves us, we must obey him. Because God loves us, we must follow him. Because God loves us, we must love him. We love him by serving him, loving him, obeying him. Okay, that's a sermon I just came up with in my head. Okay, but it's propositional statement at the very beginning. You know what I'm going to say. I prove what I just said, and then I say it again. Okay, that's deductive. Inductive... Let me see how I put it in your thing. You state the proposition. I'm sorry. Don't scratch that. You state the evidence. You state the evidence, the main points, and then draw the conclusion. So the first one is you state the big idea, and then you prove it through the main points. That's the second thing. So main idea, and then you prove it. In a deductive sermon, your proposition, which is stated here, Point one proves it, point two proves it, point three proves it. It's very straightforward. Easy to follow. It's a great way to start preaching if you're teaching, if you've never done this before. State your main point, prove it, state it again, you're done. Now, inductive is the opposite, where you begin with your evidences, which, Lee, actually, it's more like this. It's more like evidences which build and lead to your proposition. So an inductive message, you will not say your proposition until the very end of your message. And, you, and you, so you build, you, you introduce your FCF at the beginning, and then you build from point one to point two to point three, and then finally at the very end you tell them the answer. This works well with stories. Because no one starts a story off by saying, let me tell you the moral of my story. The moral of my story is don't... Uh, you know, joke around. You need to keep plotting away and do it, and eventually you'll win. If you if you if you just goof off the whole time, you'll lose. Okay, so there was once this 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 bunny, this hare, and there was this tortoise, and they were going to race each other. Okay, if I told you the, the the moral of the story before I begin to tell you the story, you're not interested in my story anymore. So when you're preaching a story or narrative, a couple here, two or three of you guys, you want to begin not. You don't want to tell them the point of your story right off the bat. Do you understand why? Does that make sense? Now, that's a little harder because you've got to lead them along to your, to your proposition, which is what we're going to talk about next. That, that's like the parable of Christ. He yeah. Got, he got their attention, 
and told them things that applied to them, and then at the end told them the solution. Yeah, and sometimes actually he did tell them the answer. He says, and this is a story he told, or Luke says, uh, he told them this story uh, that men ought always to pray and never to faint. And then he tells us, and then he tells the parable. But uh, but Jesus, when he's telling the story, uh, he very you're right. He very rarely tells them the end of or the point of the story until the very end, because uh, it kind of hits. If you kind of have it ahead of time, Potentially, but that's what an FCF is for. Is that it sets it tells you what you're supposed to be thinking about. It says we're talking about. Oh, yeah. You say FCF at the very beginning of the message, regardless. This at the end of your introduction is basically where your FCF comes in. Your whole introduction leads to your FCF. And at that point, you're setting the table for what problem you're trying to address, the Bible is addressing in this passage. And then your, your sermon addresses that problem. Your proposition, which is the answer to your FCF. Proposition is the answer to the FCF. I'll say that again. Proposition is the answer, the solution to your FCF. That is going to come either at the beginning of the message and you're going to prove it's true or at the end of the message after you've shown that it's true. Okay. So let's talk about this passage. I, I, I whipped up this, this today. So there might be some, some typos and stuff. I, I finally was like, you know, I just need to, I need to get this on paper for you guys. Yeah, this is the handout. So this is, I'm so sorry. I know I'm disorienting you guys. So look at the swoop de doo again. Go back to the swoop de doo page, and it's the very next page. Page 40 what? 47? 45? Whatever. That yeah. page? Yeah. It's 51 because I printed it out for you, but it followed this whatever 40... Yeah, 45. 46. 45, 46. I'm sorry. I didn't give that to you. Sorry. No, no, no. It was I, I, I just, I you missed it. Okay. So... The propositional statement, let's talk about the terminology here. And I'm going to go kind of slow, but not too slow because we don't have too much time. A propositional statement has two positions or slots. A because slot and a you must slot. This is the truth and exhortation. For our purposes, each slot will be structured this way. Because you have been risen with Christ, you must act like it. Okay, there is a because slot and a you must slot. Do you see that? Can you see that? I just lost it. Sorry, one second. So, you must is here. That's the exhortation. Right. Yes. It's because this is the truth side. And then the exhortation side is the you must side. Okay. So, in our example above, you have been risen with Christ is the because slot, and the act like it is the you must slot. Okay, you got those two slots. We have two slots we're going to work with. And everybody's going to structure their propositional statement the same way. Because we're starting off. Okay? Once, you, once you've done it a while, you can be flexible with it. But right now, this is a good way to kind of build in a structure. So, with these two slots, there are two parts to your propositional statement. Okay? I'm calling them the anchor and the switch. Okay? The slot in which your anchor and switch will reside will be completely dependent on whether your sermon is truth-heavy or exhortation-heavy. So let's take some explaining. I started off talking about what Cadence was doing with her, mess, her passage. I think it was yours, Ephesians 2. It had a lot of truth and not a lot of exhortation. In fact, it didn't have any obvious exhortations. That is a truth-heavy passage. Your passage is probably either truth-heavy or exhortation-heavy. Unless you're narrative, which we'll talk about in a second. But in epistles, normally your passage is either truth-heavy or exhortation-heavy. One of the worksheets I have, you can go through and you can see uh, two, uh, two examples of that. One passage is very truth-heavy. One passage is very exhortation-heavy. This is like life-changing. You can get this because this will really help you. The anchor is the part of the proposition that remains unchanged in the main point outline. So if your outline, if your proposition is, I'm going to go back to my thing, you must... Let me type it. I'm faster typing. Let me just, let me just type, uh, get this out. If your proposition is this, you must love God uh, because uh, God loves us. Okay? And let's say your point one is um, you must love God uh, or um, because, let's do it this way. Let's do it the other, right the right way. Because God loves us, you must love God. So if that's because God loves us, you must love God. Then you would say something like, 
Because God loves us, you must serve God. Because God loves us, you must obey God. Because God loves us, you must submit to or go where God says go. Okay. Um, so in this case, notice that because God loves us is repeated in each of these points. This would be the anchor. It anchors the text. It anchors the, the proposition into the main points because your main points here are supporting your proposition. Remember that. So because it doesn't change, what changes here? It, the exhortations, right? The first exhortation is serve God. And this, whatever passage of scripture this might be that I'm just, you know, obey God and go where God says go. I am, I am, um, this is a passage that has exhortation heavy. It has a lot of exhortations, but one main truth. And the main truth is, is that God loves me. So what I've done is I take these three exhortations. I summarize them as these are ways to love God back. Okay. This, I know this is not a great example, but this is just, does that make sense? Anchor and switch. Anchor stays the same. The switch switches every single time. Okay. It can be the opposite. You can say, um, uh, because God, uh, this is proposition two. Okay. Because God, um, because God saved me, you, who saves you, you must love God. Because God provides for you, you must love God. Because God, I'll oh, give me another one. You must love others. No, sanctify, I'm, talking, I'm just doing this first part. Sanctifies you, you must love God. Okay, so here's our second proposition. It's the same one. Because God loves us, you must love God. But in this case, which part am I? Which part is the anchor? Yeah, which part repeats over and over and over again? You must love God, you must love God, you must love God. So in this, whatever passage that I'm pretending to preach from here, it's telling us a lot about God with the one main point that you need to love God. And it's giving you lots of reasons to love God. So it, these are two different passages, theoretically. And in one, it has a bunch of different things we need to do because God loves us. And one main truth, that God loves you. In this passage, there's, a bun there's only one, or there's one main act, uh, act that we're called to do, one main exhortation, to love God. And there's a lot of different reasons why we should love God. And your passage, if you're preaching the New Testament, normally, I think Charles's might be different in this case, because it's, it's John, 1 John's his own thing. Especially Paul writes like this. It's very much like, because of this, you must this. Because this, you must this. Truth is the reason for why you must do what you must do. You do what you do because this is true. And either there's a lot of truths that back up one main exhortation, or there's one main truth that backs up a lot of exhortations. And whichever one it is, you've got to figure that out. You then pick one side to be the same every single point. And you repeat it over and over and over again. And that stays the same in your proposition. Does that make sense? Have I said it enough ways? Okay. So let's keep going. The switch is the part of the proposition that will be fleshed out, described, or explained through the main points of your sermon. Again, the switch will either have a because slot or the you must spot, depending on whether the sermon is truth heavy or exhortation heavy. That's what I just said. It can be either one. If you're in, you'll get really frustrated. I've done this before where I'm trying to preach and I just can't figure out why won't my sermon work. And the reason is, is because I'm trying to make it be a bunch of exhortations when really there's just one exhortation and there's a lot of different truths. I had it backwards. And when you flip that around, boom, all of a sudden it makes sense. I'm like, oh, okay. That's why I was struggling. So this is huge. And I know it can be a little confusing, but let's just keep bearing through it. I think it'll make sense. Typically in sermons that are truth heavy, that means they're exhortation-centric. The anchor is the you must. And the switch is the because. Conversely, in sermons that are exhortation-heavy, truth-centered, the anchor is the because. So basically, if you have a lot of truths, normally your anchor is the exhortation. It's centered on that. If you have a lot of exhortations, there's the, the anchor is the truth. There's one main truth. That's your anchor, and your, and your switch is all these. Okay. So that's the purpose of the exercise in Worksheet 3, which is take the group... It has fewer and summarize it because if the, which one has fewer is probably the one that's the, like the, the, the centered, not the heavy centered. And it's going to be the one that's anchor that stays the same. This will be the first 
This will be the part of your main points that will not change. And the purpose of the next exercise, take the group that has more and divide it into logical grouping, is to establish the switch of your proposition. The one that switches every time. So, is there a question? Yeah. Well, so, like, do you count it like if there's always something telling you to, do you count every single one of those as an expression? Like, I have, like, you know, being like mine, having the same love, being one accord. Is that? Yeah. One thought, or is that multiple exhortations? It's probably multiple exhortations. Sorry, I lost my screen there. Um, but the idea is you group them. And initially, they're, in it, they're exhortations, and you say, okay, is, are they all talking about the same thing? And if they are, they can all go under one main heading. Okay. And different aspects of that main heading. So being of one mind, the same accord of one, of one, one mind. I forget how. One accord of one mind. That's all basically talking about being unified. But there may be different aspects of being unified. So you would say as your main point, we're, you know, to be unified. How, and then you could say, well, how does the Bible describe being unified here? And it talks about being a, a, the same mind and then being of one accord and uh, whatever. Does that make sense? So you're going to group them in, and you're going to flesh that out into smaller groupings so that you, are, you can see. That's why I asked you guys to look for changes in your text. So you can see like it's talking about this and it switches and that's probably a new, a new break. Um, but as you structure this, you're going to look for that main thing. Um, look at your, uh, so the steps for epistolary literature, keep looking at your notes there. You're going to list your truths and exhortations. You're going to decide which side is more prominent. That is more truths or more exhortations, excuse me, exhortations. Take a larger and summarize and group these points into logical grouping, usually two to four groups. These logical groupings form the building blocks to the main points of your outline. Remember, propositions and main points should be full sentences. Create a propositional statement that connects two single ideas. Because blank, you must blank. So you summarize the one that has bigger. So if I have a bunch of truths, and I'm running out of time, truths and exhortations. If I have like a bunch of truths and like two exhortations, I say, well, I can probably summarize these two into one main thing, and I got these two, these, I mean, these three, these two, and this one. So this is like, these are the same, this is the same, this is the same. That's because of this, you must this. Because of this, you must this. Because of this, you must this. Very often, that's how it is. Not every time, but very often, that's how it's structured. I just went, I did that really fast. But does that kind of make sense? It's going to be different for everybody's text because we're talking, we're not talking, it's not cut and paste. But this is just kind of a very general way of handling this stuff. So... You look at the connection between the proposition and the main points of the sermon. Example, because prayer changes things, you must organize your day around your time with God. Okay? Proposition gives us a clear reason, the truth, and the command the exhortation that addresses the problem, the FCF. Okay? Try to say you must, not we must. Try to say you must. This week, I'm saying, or last, last week, I said we must a lot because I was trials. But normally, you're, you must, because you're speaking to people. Okay? Narrative. Briefly, and we're done. Read your text, work through the following questions. What flaw of man is revealed, taught, or demonstrated by the events in the story? What good character trait is demonstrated or instructed? Look for explicit condemnations or praises. This gives you clues to the themes for the story. What character trait of God is revealed, taught, demonstrated by the events in the story? This is what I was saying. It may not be explicit, but it's there. At the crisis moment of the story, this is key. What truth is revealed, taught, or demonstrated? You're looking for the crisis moment. So in Genesis 22, the crisis moment is when he's getting ready to strike his son. In Daniel, where is the crisis moment? It's a little more, it's a little more difficult to choose exactly where the crisis moment is. Yeah. Is God going to come through? Is God not going to come through? Yeah. And then Joseph's story, what's the crisis moment there? What's going to happen to Joseph now? It's almost at the end, uh, so to speak. And you have to almost go. You have to, that's why I was saying you might want to jump mm -hmm. to the end and see. And what universal truths are present in the story about God, about mankind, etc. Okay, does that kind of, I, it kind of make sense? So next week I want you to give your best shot, come back with a propositional statement. Um, and what else did I have assigned for you guys? Just reading. Thank you for not giving us a quiz. Yeah, you're welcome. Don't get used to it. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, so I don't need any, I don't need that today. Nope. Oh, yes, yes. Sorry. Thank you for asking. Propositional statement.
So, so next, yeah. So next week, do worksheets two and three, and work on your um, propositional propositional uh, statement.